to, um, you know what, I'm doing something a little bit different. I want to ask you to stand up today, uh, and we're going to read the Word of God in a few moments. We're going to sit back down because we're just going to follow not a text, but various verses of Scripture that highlight something to us that is so very precious. And um, it's from, this message today comes to us from a thought that was in my heart over the latter several weeks as I was reflecting about God's redemptive grace. I'm so thankful for God's redemptive grace today. And this is the thought that I've had, that every life is redeemable. That's so simple to say, but it's so true, that if someone will just turn to God, it, as, as atrocious as their life may have been, and as uh, violent or as vile as what we can imagine a human being to be, if that person will but reach out a hand to the God of all grace, he will find that God is able to save, God is able to restore, come on, God's able to forgive, God's able to redeem. Every life is redeemable. And so today, uh, I'm going to preach with that thought in mind just a little bit. And oddly enough, I'm going to connect this. The the title of my message is going to be, though, listen, I know this is odd, Faith's Review and Expectation. So don't forget that. (laughs) Say, Pastor, that's very odd. Faith's Review and Expectation. So let us pray today. Father, we are so grateful to be in this house. And I'm so privileged to be amongst men and women, as I say often, of like precious faith. We celebrate today a common faith. We celebrate that our hearts are woven by a scarlet thread. It's a scarlet thread of redemption, Father, that began in the Genesis when you slew a lamb to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Father, and we know that that scarlet thread of redemption ran all the way through the Abrahamic covenant, through the Mosaic law, and certainly manifested itself, God, on the cross of Calvary. And we're so grateful to have been woven into a faith and into a faithful group of men and women, redeemed, as Peter said, from our sins, not by, God, I confess, by silver and gold or any such thing, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Hallelujah. God, we are so grateful today that we commune with you. We know you intimately, deeply as Father God because of your kindness and grace towards us. Lord, we love you. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Come on, church family. We invite you to open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear. Open our heart to understand, God, thy word today. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen and amen. Faith's review and expectation. Thought that gave birth to this message is just those three words or four words. Uh, Every life is redeemable. So in doing, I want to take you to a few passages of Scripture to just briefly read. Now, with this, I'm not preaching from one particular passage, and I'm not necessarily even preaching from any of these passages. I'm preaching in the context of these passages, and we just want to read those. I just thank God for reading Scripture. 
to just read it and just see what it says. So they're going to post a number of scriptures on the screen that we're going to read. All of these are just simply one verse that's been taken out of a text other than one passage in which I shall read four verses of scripture. But I just want you to read it as it relates to the grace of God. I'm so thankful for the grace of God today. The grace of God that bringeth salvation to all men hath appeared to us, Paul said in in Titus 2. That grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we can live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. The word grace appears uh, in Scripture 170 times in 159 verses in the Bible. It's found in the Old Testament even though we often think of that as certainly the Mosaic law, but grace was being revealed even during the law. And we also find that the, the, the gospel writers John and Luke and Peter and Jude and James and the writer of the book of Hebrews and certainly the beloved apostle Paul all referenced the grace of God. The grace of God is defined by Strong's Listen to this, as the divine influence upon the heart. God's divine influence. See, there's something that has to change inside of a man or a woman to have communion with God. His heart must change. You can't simply know God in a mental ascent. You have to commune with him by his spirit. And the only way to commune with God is to have a heart transplant. God takes out of you, as the book of Ezekiel says, a stony heart and puts in you a heart of flesh. That's a paraphrase, in essence, for God removing from us the hardness of a sinful disposition and placing within us a desire to please Him. Paul writes and calls things like this. You become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things pass away and all things become new. That's the divine influence upon the heart. God has to do that. You cannot save yourself. You can't meditate long enough. You can't ascribe to enough uh, resources in order to produce salvation within you. You have to receive it freely by the grace of God. It's the divine influence upon your heart. Once you receive it in your heart, it is reflected in your life. It produces a change inside you. How many of you know change in the believer begins on the inside and then works its way outside? Right? Jesus said you cleanse first the cup on the inside and then work your way outward. And so it has its reflection upon the life, Strong's records as the definition. It's also translated or defined as a benefit. God's grace is a benefit. It's born of his kindness. Actually, one of the words that are words that are given to define God's grace is a merciful kindness. It's also a gift. It's charis in the Hebrew. It's or charis, I suppose. I don't know how to pronounce it. But in essence, it simply means a gift. You can't earn this. You can't earn the grace of God. You can't strive to suddenly arrive at the place where God is going to give you the payment of grace based upon your efforts in which you have earned it. No, you just simply by faith receive the grace of God. And thus salvation then is on the Lord and the Lord only. Right? He redeemed us. We were the ones that were lost with no possible means of redemption. 
God found us and redeemed us. Come on, somebody. Amen. Now, with this, let me read on. It's also his goodwill. And it's his favor. I, I understand and recognize the grace of God to be his favor. It's also, listen to this, defined as the merciful kindness. God's, think of that. God's merciful kindness by which God exerts his holy influence upon souls. Turning them to Christ. And then through grace, he keeps, he strengthens and he increases them in Christian faith and in knowledge and in affection. And he kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. Let me read that one more time. I want you to hear that now. I know it's a definition and it's hard. You're not writing that down. But let me read it to you so you can hear it because I think it's very profound. Of the merciful kindness. That's what grace is. It's his merciful kindness by which God exerts his holy influence upon our soul and turns us to Christ. See, you can't just turn to Christ. By God's Spirit, he turns you to Christ. You're drawn to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. God puts influence upon you that leads you to turn your life to Jesus. And he turns our souls towards Christ. And then, by grace, he keeps you. We're kept by the grace of God. By grace, he strengthens you. By grace, he increases you in Christian faith. He increases you in knowledge and in affection. And he kindles you to the exercise of the Christian virtues. By grace, you learn how to walk and live in a life that's pleasing to God. So let's go to the scriptures for just a few moments and let's just allow a few chosen passages of scripture to validate the principles that I just previously mentioned to you. The apostles here are writing to the New Testament church. Actually, all the scriptures that I chose came under the pen of the apostle Paul, who was the minister or the apostle of grace. So let's just read these collectively together, beginning at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 9. And it says, he said to me, I love this, my grace is sufficient for you. Can I say, I want you to say that under your breath, because as I was preparing this message, that's the first verse of Scripture that came to my heart. And that is, God's grace is sufficient for me. It's sufficient for me to be the person God desires me to be. I can't do this of myself. It's only through his empowerment. His strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul here, as he writes in reflection upon what's called Paul's thorn in the flesh, recognizes that it's the grace of God that enables him to continue to do what he does by the Spirit of God that dwells inside of him, empowering him. It's not himself. It is Christ working in him by the grace of God. Amen. Let's go farther. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, But by the grace of God, this ought to be written on every one of our headstones one day. By the grace of God, I am what I am. The grace of God has caused me. If you want to say, Pastor, how did you become the man that you're? By the grace of God. How did you get delivered from the lifestyle of sin and bondage that you used to? By the grace of God. God brought you out of bondage and his grace towards you was not in vain. He didn't just give you this grace and you uh, wasted in riotous living, but he invested this grace in you and you labor more abundantly, but you don't labor of yourself. You labor by the grace of God. Come on, let's read a little bit farther. 
Here it says, I believe in the book of Ephesians. This is the four verses tied together. Even when, look at this, you and I were dead in trespasses. Do you know what that means? That means that we were spiritually deceased. We had no life within us as a result of sin. We had life in our flesh. We had breath in our bodies. We had blood that flowed through our blood veins. But we did not have a life in us in relation to God. We were dead in trespasses and sin. But God today, now we're made alive. I don't know about you. I'm alive to God today. I commune with him today by his spirit because I was quickened or made alive. By what? By the grace of God. By the grace of God, I've been saved. Let's read this, the sixth verse. They're tied together here. And he raised us up together. And he's made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Seventh verse. That in the ages to come, he's going to show you and I. We don't know everything that there is to know about grace right now. We're learning about the grace of God. God is showing, revealing to us the exceeding riches of his grace. I'm telling you, you can live 10 lifetimes and not, and not come to the place where you know all that there is to know about the grace of God, right? And he's revealing this to us and his kindness towards us through who? Through Christ Jesus. Look at this eighth verse. Many of you could quote this. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Come on, would y'all say that it is by grace? The word saved there in the original language is sozo, and it means to be, uh, means to be made whole and to be delivered and to be healed. And so whatever God's done in your life, made you whole, healed you, delivered you, he's done it by the grace of God. It's not of yourselves. It is of the grace of God. It's of his kindness. We are the beneficiaries of God's kindness upon our lives. Amen. Let's read down a little farther, the book of Romans. Now, we're just kind of over the next three to five minutes just going through a brief overview of a subject matter that is mentioned 170 times in the Bible, the grace of God. You and I are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word justified there simply means it's been declared more than you are acquitted from your sin, you are justified from your sin. I love this. When you are acquitted, you've stood trial. And as you've stood trial, either the judge or the jury was unable to prosecute you. They may perceive that you're guilty, but they don't have the necessary evidence to actually sentence you for the crime. So you might be acquitted. So when you're acquitted, you might be guilty. You might be innocent. Only you know, I suppose, both the judge and the jury is uncertain. So you're acquitted. God doesn't say that we're acquitted. We're justified. Through the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus, God took you as an unlawful, uh, as, a, as a sinful person, and he put upon you the wrath that you rightly deserved. He put that wrath on his son on the cross of Calvary. He absorbed the righteous judgment of God so that when God's gavel fell on his judgment desk, he would proclaim you and I both innocent and justified in his sight. Because all the wrath that you and I deserved, because we had all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there was none righteous and no, not one. We had all failed in, in our own trespasses and sin. And we deserved the righteous judgment of God. But the scripture says that God so loved us that he sent his son to die in our stead. The writers in the old English called it a propitiation. It's an atoning sacrifice. Somebody stood in your place. You 
deserve death. God through Christ said, I'm going to give my life to pay the penalty for your transgression. And you are justified freely by his grace. And therefore, you can, I love this. Now, let me go a little bit farther. I'm going to just detour for just a moment. I hear a lot of this in our culture today, and I understand the, the, the precept behind it, that you've got to learn to forgive yourself. I understand that. But let me say this real quickly. That's not necessarily a biblical principle because that makes you the judge. Whoever is forgiving, whoever is casting the sentence of forgiveness has to be the judge. I'm not the judge. What I've got to learn to do is live in the revelation that I'm justified by God. Not by me. I can't say I forgive myself. No, I'm not the judge. I was the sinner. It was the judge that sentenced his son to die in my stead so that he could proclaim me justified in his sight. Hallelujah. And so, yes, I've sinned. Yes, I've hurt other people. But I don't say I forgave myself. No, I'm justified freely by his grace. It was the judge in his eyes he declared me justified. Hallelujah. Man, I'm about to preach myself happy here today. Glory to God. Actually, it's just the scriptures. It's just the scriptures. They're so full of life. Let's read on down just a moment. Here it says again, through whom, through whom, who is the whom in this passage? It's Christ. You and I have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. I love that. Faith is our doorway. It's our access point. We access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And then we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let's go a little bit farther. 2 Corinthians 6. Don't take, think that it's unnoticed that I see the New King James Version up there. Leftover remnants from Alyssa's preaching last Sunday. Then, as workers together with him, we also plead with you. Look at this. I love this. This is the Apostle Paul pleading with those that he knows has received the grace of God because he had ministered to them personally. He is pleading with them not to receive the grace of God in vain. Listen, when God gives you such a precious gift that includes within it redemption and justification and empowerment to service of life. Don't be pulled back into a life of bondage and iniquity. Don't let it be said about you as the apostle Peter wrote, the sow that was washed has returned to wallowing in the mire. Don't take the grace of God in vain and use it as in a licentious way to appease your flesh. Listen, take the grace of God and allow God to use you for his service. Come on, somebody. Amen. Let's read a little bit farther here. Just a few more verses. And this is Paul once again. And you can see that I didn't have any rhythm in in picking these verses. It was just simply as I chose, as it was quickened in my heart, as I was looking at the various passages in the New Testament where the word grace appeared. The book of Galatians then. Many of you are familiar with this teaching here that Paul is warning the Galatians from the the temptation to revert back to the Mosaic law to produce justification. And he says here, I marvel that you're turning away. There's a tendency within us that wants to seek to find some measure of justification through human effort. 
There's a tendency within us that wants to feel like we're accepted by God based upon whether or not we have done works of righteousness or not, rather than the simple childlike faith that recognizes that anything, whether it's justification or righteousness that has come as a result of salvation is entirely by the grace of God. So Paul here, which has already warned the Corinthians that they would receive, be careful to not receive the grace of God in vain, is writing to the Galatian people. And he's saying, I marvel that you've been called away from the grace of Christ to another gospel. Because there is another gospel that doesn't rest entirely upon the grace of God. And many people live in an inner tension between uh, uh, salvation by the grace of God and salvation by works. And I came along to tell you today, you will never find peace in your life until you just settle the fact that whatever good thing in your life comes to you by the grace of God. Let's read on a little farther. Galatians again. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. The King James English would say, I do not frustrate the grace of God. I don't frustrate it. Don't frustrate this precious gift. Righteousness does not come through the law. Righteousness does not come through your effort. Righteousness does not come through your ascribing to certain Christian principles. Righteousness is given to you as a result of the grace of God. Isn't that right? the author here is saying? Don't frustrate it. If righteousness comes through the law, if you could be declared righteous in any other way, then Jesus did not have to die. If there was some type of legal system, religious or political, that a man who was unregenerate, unholy, vile, and a sinner could obtain the righteousness of God through his own effort, then it would have been given. But God searched all the systems of men. God looked at all religions and found that there was no means possible for a man to find redemption. So God just shrouded himself in human flesh and hung on a cross, come on somebody, and shed his blood that you might have redemption through his blood and thereby you could enter into a covenant, a covenant not based upon the works of the law, but a covenant based upon the grace of God. Hallelujah. So don't frustrate it. Is that right? Don't set it aside. Live in its strength every day. Let's go a little farther. Galatians 5. You have become estranged from Christ. Those of you who have attempted to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Have you ever heard that thought that fallen from grace. I remember many years ago that when the, the swaggers went through uh, what they went through, what they brought upon themselves and brought upon the body of Christ and one of the major uh, magazines, periodical magazines, Time or something like that, posted a picture of Jimmy Swaggart on there and it simply was point, fallen from grace. And it was put there to shame him in one sense, but it was totally unbiblical because... The, the, what the author was saying, because he had sinned, he had fallen from grace. You don't fall from grace when you're sin, when you sin. To fall from grace would be to return to a, a, an antiquated system called the law that you ascribed righteousness under and justification under your own effort. When we sin, the only thing that brings us back to communion and relationship with God is the grace of God. I'm telling that's why every life is redeemable, Amen. right? Every life is redeemable. You have not sinned so far. You have not sinned so deep that you're beyond the reach of the grace of God. All you have to do is call out and trust in the Lord. And I'm telling you, he's ready to receive you. 
God is ready to pardon. Come on, somebody. Amen. Amen. Let's read a little bit farther for just a moment, and then I'll kind of bring you to where I want to bring you here. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul puts this both in salutations. He puts this in his benedictions at the end of his epistles. The apostle simply is writing, let this grace be with you. Man, just carry this thing with you. Live in it every day of your life. Just a couple more verses. 2 Timothy, Paul writes, Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a unique uh, perspective that Paul is writing. And if we were to go farther in that passage, he would even uh, compare it to a good soldier in Jesus Christ who must learn to endure many hardships. But here the author is saying, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. I want to be strong before the Lord, don't you? I want to be strong in the Lord. And when I think of strength in the Lord, oftentimes I think of exploits, mighty exploits. You know, if you know anything about the Bible, you cannot think about strength without thinking about Samson. How that God took a man uh, of perhaps just normal physical ability and put the anointing of God upon him. And he was able to do great exploits, right? that he was able to do great exploits of physical prowess and strength, tearing gates off the hinge and fighting lions with his bare hand and taking the jawbone of an ass and fighting a thousand Philistines. Y'all know this? Well, listen, when I think about strength, I have to be careful because I, I think about, uh, you know, a, a might, a physical might. But when I read this, per, this verse of Scripture, I recognize that my strength is in Christ. Right? My strength is in the grace of God. Thus, if we were to tie this all the way back to some of the other verses, we could say, I am what I am by the grace of God. I'm strong today, not because of my own effort, but because he gave me the effort. He gave me the ability. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Come on, someone. Be strong in the grace. Two more verses of Scripture to close, I believe it is. Or one more, lastly. 2 Peter 3 and 18. But grow in the grace... And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. We need to set our hearts as an individual and as a fellowship to grow in the grace of God. Does that make sense? To grow in the grace and in the knowledge. As you grow in the knowledge of God, you're to grow in the grace of God. As you grow in the grace of God, then you're going to be able to walk and live a life that's pleasing to him. You know, you hear me say quite often, the book of Romans says that we're not to lend our bodies as instruments of sin, but we're to lend our bodies as instruments of righteousness. I love what it says in Ephesians 4 and 17. Paul said, I write unto you that you walk not henceforth as the other Gentiles in the vanity of their mind. As Paul was writing to the Ephesians that he had previously just written two chapters over, that you were saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Now Paul is challenging them to live a life that's pleasing to God. How could Paul put the burden of responsibility upon the Ephesian believers to walk and to live a life that's pleasing to God? Because he never expected them to do it of their own selves. He expected them to yield themselves to the indwelling Holy Spirit who abides in the heart of every believer, who empowers them to live a life that's pleasing to God. That you can, listen to me, you can live a life that's pleasing to God by the grace of God. If you grow in the knowledge of God and in your understanding of the grace of God. Does that make sense? Well, I want to take just a moment of time to, as we uh, surmise this for a few moments to just share with you a story in closing today. Something that's been on my heart that validates this principle that's just been in my spirit over the last couple of weeks. Every life is redeemable. When I think about the grace of God, I think about how the grace of God moves us. How it motivates us. 
how it redeems us and empowers us. That you and I have to first receive it. Hello? And we have to celebrate it. But we have to learn to walk in it. We have to grow in it. We learn to keep it as it keeps us. We read about it. We pray about it. And we learn about it. The grace of God. And we even sing about it. Did you know one of the most famous of all hymns comes through the pen and the experiences of a man who became so despicably evil that he could not be saved apart from the grace of God. John Newton was born in 1725. Let me take you a little into his past for a moment. I've read a book this past week to help validate this principle, and I've been moved through the course of uh, observing his life, and I want to share just brief excerpts, if I can, to close the service today. This is what I meant when I opened the service and said it's a little bit out of the ordinary for me. His mother was a devout believer, and she sought to teach young John the principles of faith that she herself held to as she sought to grow in her relationship with God. And you have to remember, evangelical Christianity was just on the rise in England, Great Britain at that particular time. It wasn't that long that the Dark Ages had held the light of the true gospel uh, hidden under a bushel. But thank God for the Reformation. The Reformation had taken place, and now the light of the gospel was going forth. And people were understanding that they were saved by faith. They were saved by grace through faith. It was not of themselves. And they were learning this principle. And so as she was growing in her faith, uh, her husband was a shipmaster, and he was a very tough disciplinarian. And when you read the, the relationship that, that young John had with his father, it was very, very difficult because his father was not very affectionate. His mother was very, very affectionate, holding and, and, and tenderly bringing him up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. But his father, being a shipmaster, was a very tough, strong disciplinarian. He would discipline as a young child like you would think of a uh, uh, um, a, a sailor being disciplined and it's very hard because it's it scarred young Johnny uh, it's clear and they often even though he loved his father they often look forward to the times when the father would be out at sea where the presence of such a sternness would be absent from the home tragically John's mother died of tuberculosis when John was seven years old tuberculosis in those days was called consumption because it literally consumed the life of the afflicted person John was sent to a boarding school after his father remarried. And over the next couple of years, he was in and out of various boarding schools. And he went through a lot of uh, difficult times as he was uh, recognized as both unruly and lazy. And, and so he eventually went to, uh, out to sea with his father at the age of 11 years of age. And on one of his first voyages with his father, who was a sea captain or a sea master, the captain of a ship... He was actually enticed by one of the crew members down to the hold below. And from there, he was um, abused and sodomized as a young 11-year-old boy. His early seaman's life proved to be greatly difficult. And he was often reproved for his continued laziness. He sailed with his father six times, masking and trying to hide some of his laziness from the watchful eye of his father. And oddly enough, listen to this, in 1743, and I was unfamiliar with this practice until I read the book, uh, he was pressed into military service. And it's hard for us to fathom the way and the means that, that this took place in Great Britain in those days. Great Britain was at war with the French. And so by reason of declaring an act of war, they had to, uh, to beef up the military, both the, both the Navy and their uh, foot soldiers. And if you were not given a piece of paper exempting you from war for, or from military service for whatever reason, 
packs of mercenaries traveled the land to find both uh, young men all the way down to 17 years of age, as John was, all the way up to, you know, uh, adult men who, who were not exempted. And if they found you and you could not prove or validate that you had a reason to be exempt from military service, they literally arrested you on the spot and took you to a holding tank where you were then pressed into military service. There was no signing up, no raising your hand, no celebrating, no taking pictures that you were about to serve His Majesty's uh, uh, Navy or Army, but you were literally forced into it. And from there, if you attempted to desert or to, to desert, is it? You know, when I think of desert, I think of what's going to happen here after lunch. Uh, but if you did so, then you could immediately be, uh, be hanged upon capture. So you've got to pack, picture all this. And so he was eventually forced into military service and was assigned uh, onto a Navy uh, ship vessel. And from there, he, while on the ship, he eventually met the free thinkers of the Enlightening Age. One of the men that was on ship with him was an, uh, uh, that had gone through the Enlightenment era. And the Enlightenment simply was is that people had become enlightened to the fact that they had followed of the foolishness that there was a God and that they could that that God and Christ and the scriptures were all the imaginations of men and that you were just uh, just like uh, any other animal and so you could give in to any vile uh, and and any uh, you know selfish impulses without any fear of judgment to come because there was no God and that there was no God there was no heaven there was no hell there was nothing to fear in that context and so young John over a period of time the little measure of faith that he had held to uh, was quickly uh, overwhelmed by the influence of those that held this enlightenment and once he was convinced to abandon the faith that his mother sought to impress upon him he fully abandoned God he fully abandoned a belief in God he became vile he became foul mouthed he became a drunkard and he became sexually deviant and oddly in the middle of all of this in a life that is so uh so, so sinfully deviant in the eyes of men and in the eyes of God, God in his providence spared his life on many, time, on many occasions. Several times other people tragically died in his place where he would have been except for some odd act of providence that precluded him and prevented him from being in that particular place at that time. While aboard the ship, uh, the naval vessel, he was tried for desertion. And after he was tried for desertion, he was stripped all the way to his waist where he was beaten with the cat of nine tails for many times until he literally passed out through the loss of life and the loss of blood at the edge of death itself. His feet were placed in shackles. He was put in the hold. And a captain would eventually leave him in Africa at a plantation. And while there upon that plantation, he himself, young John Newton, a young man between 17 and the age of 20, became a slave to the slave traders. He was abused, he was shackled, he was tormented, and he was dying of jungle sickness. But at the same time, he was still wretched, immoral, unholy, and godless. He was eventually returned to sea aboard a slave trading vessel. And there, he, as a first hand, he witnessed and he participated in the wretched abuse of the African slave trade. It was very difficult, I must confess to you from my own personal meditations, it was very difficult to read about the trauma of the Africans as they endured the African slave trade. He personally participated in the deviant sexual abuse of the captive slave women. 
while on board the ship, one of these particular slave ships that he was on as a young man. This, again, goes on for several years. He's just wretched, hardened against God, seeking to fill every vile passion to gratify the lust of his flesh without any consciousness of conviction. But in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a storm and uh, with, the, with the winds howling and the ship about to be broken up. He's awakened from sleep. All hands are called to deck to try to survive. In the middle of that, a word comes to him reminding him of a promise that his mother gave him when was, he was a little lad. And when he was, that word came to him in the midst of the howling, uh, perhaps even hurricane in the midst of the ocean. He cries out to God and he calls out to God for his mercy. And God was willing to show him his mercy. And here's what history records. That as the ship filled with water and Newton is crying out to the God of his mother, the God of all grace, the cargo shifted inside the hull of the ship. And in doing so, it stopped up the hole that was allowing the water to fill the cavity of the ship. And the ship slowly but safely drifted to shore. And from that time, Newton began to read the scriptures. And upon reading the scriptures and Christian writings, he learned to avoid the licentious life that he previously lived. He marked that day, listen to this, he marked that day as the beginning of his conversion. Though he could not consider himself a true believer in the full sense of the word. Later, he would marry his childhood sweetheart. But unfortunately, listen to this, he would continue to work in the slave trade for several more years though he did become sympathetic and more humane to the plight of the Africans. Later in life, he sought to be relieved from his duties as now captain of a slave trading vessel, but he could not find appropriate work. And right before he was about to go back out to sea, and his heart was dreading going out to sea uh, to to lead that vessel uh, back to Africa to pick up another cargo load of slaves and bring them both to England and to the New World, he suffered a stroke at just in his early 20s in 1754 that prevented him from ever returning to the sea. At that time, he then began to work as a tax collector for the British government. But while doing so, he began to study Greek, Hebrew, and Syriac. And he was influenced by these dynamic ministries. And my heart wept as I read this in the passage of the scriptures. The, the, the ministries of John Wesley and George Whitfield were prominent in those days. And young John Newton was given the opportunity to go and to hear these tremendous men of God as they ministered the word of God concerning that every man must be saved by the grace of God. He accepted later the call to preach. And he was eventually appointed as an Anglican priest. He pastored two churches, and he put his personal conversion to testimony in print, and he mailed it out all across the great, uh, all across Great Britain. In actuality, when you look back, John Newton's pen influenced many more than his preaching did. He would eventually help shape the faith of a young convert at his church named William William Wilberforce, who would become a member of Parliament. During this time of pastoring these churches, he also authored many hymns and spiritual songs, collecting them and collecting his poetry into a single hymnal in 1779 that was later published as the only hymns, which uh, the name is given from the community in which he dwelt. But in 1788, listen to this, church family, 34 years after his retirement from the slave trade, he would finally break his silence. For all those years, he remained silent about the things that he saw and that he participated in. 
He writes a forceful pamphlet called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade in which he described the horrific conditions from one who viewed it in a first-hand account of the slave trade. He would apologize, listen, these are his own words, for a confession which comes too late. He would write, I will always be a subject of humiliating reflection. It will, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in the business at which my heart now shudders. Later in life, Newton would, ally, would become an ally of his former disciple, William Wilberforce, who was the parliament leader of the abolitionist movement in London. Reverend Newton would testify before the parliament concerning the horrors of the slave trade. And he would live to see the Slave Trade Act of 1807 that forbade the buying and the selling of slaves in the British Isles. It was not the total uh, abolition of slavery. That would not take place till 1833, but it was the start. And he would live to see it. And he would die in the very same year at the age of 82 years of age. And when you look back at his life, you think of a wretched man, and you read the novel that was written, you read his own autobiography, you read about a wretched man that was transformed into a minister of the gospel by the grace of God. In his hymnal, the, the only hymns, the volume contains these hymns, the glorious things of thee are spoken. I don't know if you've ever read that hymn but, or sung that hymn, but it was a very popular hymn for many years in the church. He also penned How the Name of Jesus Sounds. I'll tell you, his name sounds blessed to me today. Amen. He also penned Oh, for a Closer Walk with God. And unbeknownst to me until the time of the study this week, he also gave us There is a Fountain Filled with Blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all their guilt and stain. But he is most famous for and known in history for writing the hymn entitled Faith's Review and Expectation. The title of which has been lost to history and it comes to us today as the most famous of all hymns, Amazing Grace. John writes, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved. I wonder, when he wrote those words, did he remember the licentious life and lifestyle, the abuse and the abuser, the fornicator and the foul mouth, the one who was violently wicked. When he wrote those words, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, for I was once lost but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that brought, that taught. So you have to learn from grace. You have to be taught by grace. Grace has taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears has relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Now I understand why it says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. 
It was grace that brought me safe thus far. And guess what, church family? It's grace that'll lead you home. He will come on, somebody. Amen. Shane's going to join me on the platform. We're going to get ready to close. Listen to what he says here as he continues in this famous of all hymns. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun will forbear to shine. But the God who called me here below, that's the God, that's the God that will forever be mine. It's amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. Come on, somebody. So today, I don't know about you, I can testify with John Newton and I can testify with the Apostle Paul. I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. How? By the grace of Almighty God today. Why don't y'all stand up with Shane for just a moment and we're going to sing this song. Then I'll this hymn and I'm going to come back and give it.